morning. You got your Bibles. Go to the book of Second Peter. Second Peter chapter one. We're going to start at verse two. Second Peter one two. Let us pray. Father God, in the name of Jesus, God, we thank you. We praise you for you are God, a great God, a real God. Help us to truly focus on you, God, to never forget you, to always keep you in our mind. Teach us, give us understanding in Jesus name. Amen. Second Peter chapter two. I mean, chapter one, verse two. Second Peter chapter one, verse two. It says, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power have given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that have called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. This opening chapter of the book of Peter is a big deal around here because it's where we get our name from. And there's just a couple points I want to pull out just to tie everything in and keep everything going together. In verse 2, where it says, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you, through the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter is showing the same thing that we've been talking about for about a year now. The grace and the peace that he desires, that he's praying to be multiplied through the people, is come, it comes through the vehicle of the knowledge of God. So if you want the grace of God to operate in your life, if you need the peace of God in your existence, that flows through the knowledge of God. So grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the more grace we get, uh, we get more grace, the, no, the more knowledge we get. We get more peace, the more knowledge we get. But it's not just knowledge or information of random facts. It's knowledge of knowing God. So the more intimately we know him, the more real he is within our existence, the more grace, the more peace that we have. So our main pursuit on this planet is not giftings, it's not social anything, it's to know God. Our main purpose for existing is not anything external to the knowledge of God. You can do and be one of the greatest people to ever walk this planet. You can find a cure for cancer. You can do whatever it is you want to do on this earth. If you do not know God, you have not fulfilled purpose. Because the only reason we exist is for union and communion with him. And the only way we truly fulfill destiny is through the knowledge of him. Are y'all understanding what I'm saying? And we got to get this in our skull. So the thing that we pursue more than anything is God and God himself. Because if we want peace, we need knowledge of God. If we want grace to work and operate in our lives, we need the knowledge of God. 
And watch this in verse 3. So according as his divine power have given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. So this grace and peace is multiplied through the knowledge of him in accordance with uh, to the same degree that his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertains unto life and godliness. So this knowledge works. It operates. We get this grace and we get this peace, but it's matching up to the degree that God's divine power has given unto us all things that that pertains to life and godliness. So the power of God, the great majesty of God, the El Shaddai, the king, the ruler of heaven and earth, to the degree that his power provides for us, that's the degree that his knowledge multiplies grace within us. So how impotent is the power of God to provide everything that pertains life to God? There's nothing that can thwart his power. There's nothing that can diminish his power. He's the everlasting God. His power never fails. The Bible says he never get weary. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. So his power is always at work. And to that same degree, his knowledge is perfecting grace and peace within us. Are you understanding what I'm saying? So how great you can imagine the power of God. Just whatever it is you think of how powerful God is. To that same degree in your mind, put the power of the knowledge of God multiplying grace within you. So let's say you say, can nothing overpower God. He can do whatever he wants to. That means you need to believe God can do whatever he wants to in his grace within me. Because his grace works through his knowledge in accordance with the provision of his power. They on the same level in the same scale. You, you, it makes sense to you. You get what I'm saying? So however high his power is in your life, you say God can give me whatever, whatever, whenever, and he control all of life, he do all of that. To that same degree as I know him, his peace and his grace is multiplied within me. So I need to have the same confidence in his grace working in me as I have in the confidence in his theoretical power to do some abstract thing. Because they work in agreement. So it's according as his divine power. So to the, to the same degree that his divine power provides for life and godliness, that's the same degree that the knowledge of him multiplies grace and peace within me. But did it, check how it works, though. And it's through the knowledge of him that hath called us unto glory and virtue. So we get the grace and peace. His divine power works through the knowledge. In verse 4, said, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. So through the knowledge of him in this calling, we get exceeding great and precious promises. So through the knowledge of God, through his calling us, there are some promises that is attached to it. And those are the things that we've been trying to work out over this past year. Just showing you glimpses and pieces of it with the hopes that you dig in and pull it out yourself. So give an example. Like last week, we talked about the fact that he was divine. And we are the branches. So since he is divine and life flows through the through divine, attached to that is a promise. And he gave us the promise. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But if you abide in me and my word abide in you, you shall bring forth much fruit. That's a promise. But that promise is attached to the knowledge of knowing him as divine. You, you understand what I'm saying? So through the knowledge of him, 
there's pro- there's promises that we exceed. They're great and they're precious promises, but it only come and we only gain access to them through the knowledge of him. So everything we've been talking about about God, there are the promises that is connected to that knowledge that if we gain that, if we understand that his grace works through us. And in the end of verse four, he said, by these, you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So through these promises, as you gain hold of these promises that comes through the knowledge of God, you gain the divine nature of God. That's deep. So the same nature that God possesses enters into you, but it happens through these promises. And we gain these promises through the knowledge of him. You see the chain. So everything begins and everything revolves around us knowing God. So as you read your Bible, as you study, try to see God and Christ revealed through the scriptures. And as you see him, there's promises attached to the knowledge of him. And through those promises, you gain access to his very nature. Uh, You understand what I'm saying? And that's what we've been trying to give little glimpses and pictures of throughout this whole time. So when God revealed himself to Moses, when he says that I'm a long-suffering God, I'm a patient God, I'm a gracious God, full of mercy, in that, as we gather understanding of that, there is promises attached to that. So if God is long-suffering, attached to that is, this is the nature of God. So this is the way he moves and this is the way he operates, which means for me that I have a patient God that's willing to abide with me, that's willing to work with me because he's not easily frustrated. You get what I'm saying? So there's a promise attached to that. So once I know him to be long suffering, I know him to be patient. So I know him to be a God that's willing to work with me. I know him to be a God that's willing to deal with me and willing to do whatever it takes to get me to the place that he desired me to be because he's long suffering. I cannot frustrate the grace of God. Because of my incompetence. You you understand what I'm saying? So that's the, the, the knowledge or that knowledge produces a promise that produces in me the nature of God. So how does that produce in me the nature of God? Because that gives me confidence. That's why James said, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives liberally and upbraided not. So that promise that God gives liberally and will not upbraid, that upbraid means he won't scold you, he won't demean you, he won't down talk you, that is connected to the nature of who he is. So James can have confidence that God won't bash you if you go to him for wisdom because he know who God is, that God is a patient God. You you understand what I'm saying? So God is not like us when we're trying to help our children with math. (laughs) Parents understand that. Like you you tell them and they repeat it back to you. Then they sit down and put it on the paper and they don't, don't know how to do it. Like, what you mean? <laughs> you just did it. Or they do one problem and get to the next problem and be like, what am I supposed to do? And y'all understand what I'm saying? And we be like, go! <laughs> because we start off loving and want to help, but after saying the same thing so many times, and explain it to the point where they just said it back to you and they still don't know what to do, you 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 run out. 
your suffering ends. And so they end up crying. <laughs> you end up just kicking them on somewhere and having to walk off or you slap them across the head. And no homework end up done. Because you done ran out of patience. But God ain't like that. And so what he's saying is, if he tells you one time, and you don't quite get it, he'll tell you again. And you say, I understand. But then you move on to another problem that has the same answer. And you say, I don't see how this going to work. <laughs> the fact that God is long-suffering, he's willing to say, start all the way back over from the beginning. And explain it to you just like you never heard it before. Because he's a long-suffering God. So that tells me that I have free access to go to him and I don't have to be ashamed that I don't quite get it. That I had victory yesterday and it was fun, but now I'm back in the same spot. It's like, how does it work? But because God is long-suffering, you got to promise that if you if you go through that, if you had a victory one day, then you frustrated by the same thing the next day, you can go back to him again. And since you can go back to him again, he will work within you again, which is changing and perfecting the nature that, ha that he has in you. But you can only have faith and confidence in that if you know him to be that. And by knowing him to be that, that gives you the promise that he will do that. You get what I'm saying? So it's through the promises of God that we gain access to the nature of God. And that same nature is perfected our work within us. So that means we have to know the promises. But we can only know the promises if we know God. Because all his promises are connected to his nature. So that's why all this time we have been talking about God. And different aspects of God. And to a large degree saying the same thing in different ways. To get it in your mind that this is who God is. This is where my hope is. And this is who I need to know. And long as you know that, and long as you know you have that source, you have the nature of God within you. So this is how we gain access to the divine nature. This is how we be the divine nature assembly. Because we people who know God and trust in his promises. It ain't got nothing to do with what we can do or what we can accomplish. It's God that works in me. Are you with it? So that's all we need to know. So what should be our number one pursuit in this life? Running after Jesus. Because we talked about the fact that Jesus was the word of God. And when we talked about the fact that Jesus was the word of God, we showed you in John 1 that the word of God is the one who exegetes or the one who explains the father. That John, it says, no man have seen the father except the son who declares him or who exegetes him. And what that literally means, most people think it means that nobody laid eyes on God. You can take it there, but that's not really what he was talking about. What he was saying is no man has perceived him. Nobody has understood God the way he was supposed to be understood, but the word has explained him. So we get explanation. We get understanding of who God is through the word of God. So long as we know Jesus be, to be the word, we know that we have access to understanding of the father that the world can't receive. Because the word explains him. The word exegetes him. He is the express image of God. So long as I know God through the word, I know God 
in nature because he explains him. Do you understand what I'm saying? So I have confidence because you say, man, how can I know God? The word explains him. So when you run into the mysteries or the complexities of his nature, you run to the word because the word explains it. He gives us revelation. He gives us understanding. He gives us everything we need so that we can truly know who this God is that we're supposed to understand. So we end up in this circle. I get the grace of God through the knowledge of God. And the knowledge of God produced within me, uh, applies to me promises that produce within me the nature of God. And so we try to start. So what do I need to do to know God? You start with God. Because the only way you can know him is if he expresses himself. But the way that he expresses himself is through the word. So the answer to everything is what? Jesus. I said that man knew what he was talking about when he sang that song back in the 80s. Jesus is the answer for the world today. So the training that we have to get it within ourselves is not to look beyond ourselves in the sense of in this world or not to look within ourselves in the sense of our own resources, but to always look to Jesus. Because I'm reading the Bible and it get deep and it get hard to understand. It ain't on me to figure it out. I need to know God. Who provides my needs? God. So if I need to know him and I can't quite understand him, whose job is it to teach me? God. So all I need to do is go to Jesus, which gives you a key when you're searching for these things. So as you're reading this thing, you need to be looking for who? Jesus. Because <laughs> he's the one that's going to make the Father make sense to you. He's the one that reveals him. And as long as you get that revelation and that knowledge of him, you get the what? The nature. So if I don't see the nature of God in me, that means I need to seek for who? Jesus. Because as long as I get the knowledge of him through the promises of him, I get the nature. So that's why we're going to spend a whole lot of time talking about God. And we've been talking and focusing on the person of the Messiah, Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. But we're going to do something a little bit different. Because when we talked about believing a long time ago, we made the statement that you can only have faith in a person based off their character and their word. That's the only way you can have faith in somebody. Based on who they are and what they say. Faith does not reside in us. We can't create it. We don't make it up. If the foundation for my believing this is in my mind, and me convincing myself that it's true is not faith. It's foolishness. The only way you can have faith in a person is who he is and what he has said. Uh, you, you understand? And so we're going to go a little bit to a second point. Jesus makes these statements throughout the gospel that sticks with me. He tells us some stuff that he's going to do. And we're going to look at a couple of them. I'm going to try to get three in. We're going to look at a couple of them. But give an example of what I'm talking about. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus called Peter and his brother Andrew. They out there fishing. And he called them to follow me. He said, follow me and I will make you fisher of men. So that sounds like a promise, correct? So that he called him, say, if you follow me, I will make you fisher of men. And so we're going to take those type statements and see what is it that God, that Christ said he was going to do in our lives and in our reality. Let's start at Matthew chapter 
Let's go to chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Start at verse 13. It said, when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, whom do men say that I the son of man am? And they said, some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah's are one of the prophets. He said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee, Thou art Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So this is Jesus sitting down with his disciples, getting towards the end. And so they're in this coast, Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus started to get deep and asking them, what's the talk? What's the word on the street? What are they saying about? Saying hashtag Jesus. You want to see what's trending. So in the trending topics, they start telling some people trending Jesus, Jeremiah. Some people trending hashtag Jesus, Elijah come back. All that stuff going on. He's like, well, I ain't worried about what they say. What do y'all say? And Peter speaks up with what Jesus reveals to be a pure revelation from God. You're Christ. Son of the living God. And Jesus blesses him. And in blessing Peter, he makes a promise. In verse 17, I mean verse 18, he said, I say unto thee, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. So Jesus saying he's going to do something. And he said he will build his church. So Jesus got an agenda. Carpenter Jesus becoming a contractor. And he's setting out to build a church. Now, the word church basically means an assembly of gathered ones. Ones called together for a purpose. Ones called together to accomplish a task. The ecclesia is almost like the Senate or the Congress. So it's this group of called out ones would be the literal translation of. So on this rock will I build my group of called out ones. So Jesus has a plan. Jesus has a an agenda, and he promises us that he's going to build a church, a group, an assembly, and the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against this church, this group, this assembly. But in this, I want to pull out a couple of things. In Jesus' promise, he's promising to build a group. That don't sound deep, but it is. He's promising to build a group. And this is something we have to dig deep down into our skull in our 21st century American mindset because salvation has become so personalized and everything has to do with us and me and Jesus is dealing with me that we miss the corporate work that God is doing. God is not calling or building individuals. He's building a church. You get what I'm saying? And this is his promise to his disciples. This is what I'm going to do. I'm not building a whole lot of people. I'm building one, one group. 
And so the idea that God has in his calling of his people is he's not calling you just away from the world. He's not calling you just unto himself. He's calling you to be a part of a group, to be a part of something. And this whole something is a part of the vision and the plan of God. This is what Jesus is working on. So if all of your salvation peaks in yourself, you ain't part of Jesus' plan. If your whole identity or the fact that I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, reach its pinnacle in you, you ain't a part of God's plan. Because if we call to follow Jesus, if we call to be doing what he's doing, if we call to be a part of him, what he say he going to be doing? Building a church. So if we in him and he is in us, that means we're doing what? Building a church. Because that's what he's promising to do. So if I'm a part of his called ones, if I'm the ones who heard the voice of God, he called me to be a part of something. So there are no such thing as long range of Christians. We do not exist in and of ourselves. We exist as a part of a family. And this is what God is working on. This is his promise that this is what he's going to do. He's going to build. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Referring to what? The church. You understand what I'm saying? So we think in our mind that I'm an overcomer, which is true. That the gates of hell won't prevail against me, which is true. But that power resides in a group. Go to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 7. Ephesians 4 verse 7. says, but unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he said, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. So he's talking about Jesus. He said, unto every one of us, all of us individuals, is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. So we all got a grace. We all got some working that's work and operate according to the gift of Christ. So the, the gifting that Christ gives us is some grace that works in us according to that. He's talking about everyone, all you individuals. Then he explained why he say that. Because he that ascended, descended. But when he ascended, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto man. So a part of Jesus' rescue, a part of his plan was to give gifts unto people. Go down to verse 11. Chapter 4, starting at verse 7. Yeah, I ain't no 7 in the EP. <laughs> Got that new Bible. <laughs> Chapter 4, now I'm at verse 11. It said, He gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints and for the working of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Are, are you tracking with me? So everyone. The individuals is given a gift according to the measure of the work of Christ. Now, the cool thing about this is this is a letter that Paul sent to the church at Ephesus to be disseminated amongst all the people. 
So when he's addressing the church at Ephesus, he's addressing the entire church, the entire assembly. So when he's talking to the people, he's saying everyone is given a gift according to the measure of Christ. So who's included in that one? Everybody that's a part of this church. So Jesus ascended. He sent down gifts and he gave them for everyone according to the measure. So they work differently based on how the gift of God operate, but it's for everybody. Then he began to specify some. Since some he gave apostles, some he gave prophets, since some were well, yeah, evangelists and some pastors and teachers. So Jesus began to disseminate these gifts amongst the people. But these apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor teachers, these gifts were distributed amongst who? The church, not the clergy, not the elders, but the body. So there's not this segregated group of people who have access to the special giftings that God has. This is, he gave to everyone gifts according to the measures of the great working of Christ. So everybody got access to this stuff. God giving them out as he pleased amongst the people, not amongst the special class. Are you, are you tracking with me? So why did he give these gifts? Verse 12 said, for the perfecting of the saints. So to complete the saints, to bring the saints to the fullness for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. So he gave out these gifts amongst the church so that the body itself would be perfected. So everybody is going to be strengthened. Everybody is going to be edified because he's passing out gifts equally amongst the people. Are, are you tracking with what I'm saying? Because God has a plan and he's building something. And in his building, he's disseminating it amongst everybody. There is no special class. There is no segregated group of people. These things are dispersed. So do you have to receive some special ordination to be considered a pastor teacher? No, we didn't read that on this page. It said Christ ascended and gave gifts. Not gave gifts amongst the elders, not gave gifts amongst the clergy, not gave gifts amongst the special people who received a special anointing, but he gave amongst everybody. For everybody. So that everybody could be built up. So if Aaron has a gift, Aaron's gift ain't to make Aaron great, it's to make the body strong. You understand what I'm saying? Because God has an agenda. God made a promise. That means part of his promise is that he's going to build a church. And that's what he's working. That's what he's doing. He's building a body. He's building assembly. And we see the picture of it in this. 13, these gifts operate, these gifts works till we all come unto the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of Christ. So God's working and building this church, God's working and operating in this church so that everybody in this assembly will come once all and we match up to look like Jesus. That's God's plan. So if Apostle Jay makes it and he's walking and looking like Jesus, but none of us are, 
is his work complete? No. And if Apostle J make it, and he walking and looking like Jesus, and none of us are, is he operating in his gift? No. Because the gift was given unto him for the building of us. So if we ain't getting built, built, he ain't working right. It don't matter how great he is. It don't matter what he accomplished on this planet. Unless the people who are connected to him begin to look like him, he ain't nothing. Because the gifts move and operate for the building of the body. And God has a goal in building this church that he's going to build an assembly of people who look like himself. That's what he said he's going to do. So our goal in our mind as we see church and as we view church should be that we are a part of the plan of God. We are a part of the work of God. We are a part of the promise of God. And we get to operate like him and be a part of his operation as well. So he's working on me and he's working through me and it's all for everybody. Because he said he's going to build a church. Uh, you understand what I'm saying? And that church does not consist of big rocks and little rocks. It consists of a whole bunch of little rocks. Because in that statement, he said, Thou art Peter, thou art Petra, but upon this Petros. So you're a little stone upon this massive stone, I'm going to build my church. And so the Catholic folks are going to tell you, see, Peter is the foundation of the church. But Paul told us that the foundation have already been laid, which no other man can lay, which is Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. So Jesus is the foundation of the church. The revelation of the knowledge of him is the foundation of the church. And we're all being built on that same foundation. Peter included. So is Peter greater than air? No. Because the whole reason Peter exists is to make Aaron look like Jesus. The whole reason Peter got revelation was to make Aaron look like Jesus. So Peter is useless without Aaron. And Aaron has same access to the same things that made Peter who he was. Are you understanding what I'm saying? So when we see people in church, we see brothers, we see an assembly that we all need to be helping look like Jesus. So if God is moving in you and he's giving you a gift, you want to prophesy, that comes from Jesus. But it ain't to make you great, it's to make the people around you strong. And you ain't got to wait on nobody to ordain you. You ain't got to wait on nobody to commission you. All you do is operate for the edification and the building of the people. So your goal in operating in these gifts is to see the people who with you, who claim Christ like you, look like Jesus. No other thing. So if he gave you the power to lay hands on the sick, you do that to the glory of God for the building of the body. And that's the only purpose for it, to make the people around you look like Jesus, to call people into this body, to edify this body, because that's what Jesus is doing. Go to the, the, the first chapter of Ephesians. Watch, 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 watch what he said. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22. I'm going to start reading that 21. 20. Which he wrought in Christ, talking about the great power of God, when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every 
name that is named, not only in this world, but also in the world which is to come, and have put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. This is a beautiful picture that Paul is painting, talking about the exaltation of Jesus. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. He's been given dominion and glory above everything. And he said he gave this to him and made him to be the head over the body, which is the church, that he may be full, I feel all, which is the fullness of him that filleth all. So the body of Christ is the fullness of Christ, and Christ is the one that fills all. Just think about that. So the fullness of Christ is placed within his body. So all the greatness and the magnitude that made Jesus Jesus, all the operation and the, the work is in the miracles that made Jesus Jesus, all the power, authority, and glory that made Jesus Jesus has been placed inside of his body. And we are the fullness of him. That's why Paul can make a statement that it's been given unto him to fill up the sufferings of Christ. Like, that don't make no sense. Like, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Man, his, his work was complete, finito. So how he going to finish or fill up the sufferings of Christ? What was lacking in the sufferings of Christ? Nothing. His suffering was perfect. But his suffering bought salvation while the sufferings of Paul carried it to the world. Are you understanding what I'm saying? So Paul had a part to play in his suffering, and his suffering was compared to Jesus' suffering because Jesus suffered to bring salvation down to mankind while Paul suffered to take it out into the world. So there was a connection in Paul's mind between his workings and Christ's workings. So he saw a connection between his sufferings and Christ's sufferings because he understood that he is a part of the body of Christ, and as the body of Christ, we are the fullness of Christ. So Christ operates on this planet now, how? Through us, through his people. He's building an assembly. He's building a congregation. He's building a work. And that's the idea, that's the picture that he has in mind. Like in the first century Rome, they had the Caesar. The Caesar ran everything. But if you pay close attention, they were not a... a uh, a hierarchy ship. They didn't have no king. But we see Caesar as a king. And technically he did work and operate as a king. But Rome was a republic. Because there was a group of people. Right up under Caesar. Who pretty much ran and operated all the laws. He had the power to veto. And to do whatever he wanted to do amongst them people. But they had power to run and to execute. The laws of the kingdom. They established. They wrote the laws of the kingdom. As the congregation, as the ecclesia, up under the lordship of Caesar. And it's the same type of picture that Christ gives when he comes out, he calling and building his church. So there's this group of people who has the ability through the authority of the one great king to rule and to execute. Are you understanding? That's why the next verse in Matthew 16, verse 19, he makes this statement. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound. And whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall have been loosed, or shall be loosed. That get a little deep now. Now, what in the world does that mean? And if you want to research it, look it up. It means something different depending on what congregation you come from. In the charismatic circles, that means you can stump your feet and roll your neck and tell the devil, I bind you in the name of Jesus. That's what it means. 
if you're Catholic, it means that the dude who you call father can put a little X on your head and tell you your sins have been forgiven. That's what that means. Are you are you understanding what I'm saying? But in reality, when you think about it, we have been given glory, dominion, and power through the person of Christ. Christ moves, he lives, he works, and operates through us. So when he said, whatsoever thou shalt bind shall be bound in heaven. Let's look at it a couple more places. Jesus quotes it. Let me show you something. Get the full picture, then we go. Go to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18. Verse 18, I think is the one I want. Uh, yeah, 18, 18. I'm going to start reading at 15. It said, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his faults between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou shalt hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two or more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. If he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be as an heathen man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that shall that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of thee. So Jesus, he's quoting that same thing. A couple points I want to point out. Now, in 16, he made the statement, whatsoever you shall bind, it shall be bound, and whatsoever you shall loose, it shall be loose. If you follow the context through, he's actually talking to Peter, because Peter was the one who had the revelation. That's who he was addressing. So the Catholics going to take that and tell you that. That shows you Peter was the apostle, and the Pope got the same power that Peter had, and it flows through. But in this one, he quotes the same thing, but now he's applying it to who? Everybody. Because he said, one of your brothers in the fault, you go to him. And tell him your fault one by one. If he don't listen to you, take a couple witnesses. If he still refuse, bring him to the church. And if he won't listen to the church, he shall be as a publican and a sinner. Because whatsoever thou shalt bind, who is he talking to? Everybody. So the same power that he claimed to give Peter in 16, he extends to the church now. But now in this context, he's talking about catching a brother in a fault and trying to restore him. So part of this binding and loosening has something to do with forgiveness, has something to do with the acknowledgement of sin. Let's look at one more before we expound. Go to John chapter 20, I think it is. Yeah, John chapter 20. I'm going to pick up at verse 21. John chapter 20, verse 21. I'm going to try to understand this thing. Then said Jesus unto them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father has sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and said unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. Seems to be a crazy and funny statement. Like, why would Jesus say that stuff to confuse everybody? Because this sounds a little more vague and binding and loosened. We can make up anything with that one. No. <laughs> But in here, he says, whosoever sins you remit, they shall be remitted. And whosoever sins you retain, they shall be retained. But look at the tracking again. He says, as the Father sent me, so send I you. 
So we get the same commission that Jesus got, right? God sent Jesus down, the missionary of the Father. He sends us out. We the missionaries of Jesus. So everybody in this room, if you know Jesus, you're a missionary. Who sent you? Jesus. You don't need no commission from no priest, pastor, bishop, anything. If you got the Holy Ghost inside of you, you are a missionary. Because God gave gifts to people for what? The operation of the work of the ministry. Who get the ministry? We all get it. Ain't nobody big, ain't nobody great, but Jesus. Side point. Told him, receive the Holy Ghost. Whoever sins you remit, they shall be remitted unto you. And whoever sins you keep, they shall be kept. So now let's think about this. I told you, Catholics got deep explanation. They got books and volumes on this. That's why you go into the little box and you talk to that man. And he put the little X on your head and he tell you, daughter, your sins are forgiven you. Uh, you call the little Catholic man, you on your bed about to die. He put the little rosary around your hand. And he make the little X cross your chest and your body and he said your sins are forgiven you because that's what he think he's fulfilling the, the, the apostleship of Peter and the, and the authority that they have. But if you think about it, now Peter, the one who initially got the revelation, he gets the glory, the power, and he gets the preaching. And the people get convicted in Acts chapter 2 once the Spirit came and they say, what must we do to be saved? Now, if Peter understand this thing like the Catholics, he would have said, children, your sins are forgiven you. Go your way. But he didn't. He says, repent and believe in the gospel and be you baptized for the remission of your sin. So either Peter forgot what Jesus told him or he had a different understanding than the Catholics. Because he didn't seem to flex no power that say, I got the power to tell you, you forgiven. And then the dude Simon the sorcerer came. He was trying to buy the Holy Ghost. And Peter made this super deep statement to him. Like, man, you ain't got no part in the kingdom of God. Repent and pray to God if perhaps your sins might be forgiven him. Now, the way Peter wrapped that, it's like it's a possibility your sins going to be forgiven you. You need to go pray. That don't sound like what that man be doing when he be putting that cross cross poke head and on their chest. It sounds like a whole different thing. So whatever our understanding of this thing is, it cannot be that we got the power to put a little cross on people's head and telling them, don't worry about it, your sins are forgiven you. So what does it mean? You have the power to bind, you have the power to loose. It's because God has given unto us the kings, the, the, the passageway of the kingdom. So it's something that he possesses. Isaiah 22 is talking about the servant that's going to come. He said it was given unto him the keys of the of the house of David. So there's some authority that has been given. There's some authority that has been placed upon Messiah and he's extending that into us. And that the authority is the ability to explain, the ability to declare the reality and the truth of who God is and what he has declared. That's why Paul, I mean Jude, in his little bit of short epistle, he says that we are to earnestly contend for the faith. There's a responsibility of us in this household that we have some authority about what goes on and what goes down and it, the responsibility lies with us. We get a picture of that with Adam. When God created the garden in Genesis chapter 2, it says that he gave him to dress it and to keep it. And a part of that keeping is to take care of it and to protect it. And he initially, after he get the commission to protect it, what shows up? The serpent. Serpent shows up in the garden, the garden that who's supposed to protect it? Adam. 
So Adam allowed a serpent into the garden to speak into the life of his wife. And we live in the results of it all the way up to now. Because he wasn't fulfilling his role to keep and to protect the garden. He allowed something foreign into it and he relinquished his authority to that of the serpent. And as an authority that we have as the people of God that's been placed upon us as the children of God, that what happens in this church, in this assembly, we have some rights. But with rights comes responsibility. That's why Jews said, earnestly contend for the faith that has been once and for all delivered unto the saints. Because once things begin to rise within this church, as was shown in Matthew chapter 18, so man wasn't living right, he wasn't doing what he was supposed to, it was a, the responsibility of the church to weed that out. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 4, 5, and 6, really, Paul's talking about a man who was caught in adultery, doing some crazy, wicked things, sleeping with his father's wife. He said, this type of stuff should not once be named among you that is called saints. You give this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Paul was telling them to do it. So they had some rights. They had some responsibility of some things going on in that church that Paul looked at them and said, it should not be happening and you need to take care of it. Because we have been given power to hold, to retain, to remit, to let stuff go. But that power is connected to our filling with the Holy Ghost and our being a part of this called out ones. Are you understanding what I'm saying? But dang, my number one point right now is this power does not lie within a man. It lies within what? An assembly. Are you, you, you give me? So if ever, God forbid, I get to tripping and do some foolishness. You have the power to say, uh-uh, that ain't going to be, that cannot be. And if you can't get with it, you need to get gone. Are you understanding what I'm saying? And if ever, God forbid, I get foolishly, get like these TV preachers and tell you, well, you can't speak against the anointed one of God. That's foolishness. If I am in error, and you know that the script says this is error, you have the power, Aaron, to come to me and say, hey, man, that ain't going to go down up in here. You you get what I'm saying? You don't got to doubt in your mind and say, man, well, I'm saying he taught me by Jesus. I'm saying so. How much? No, you got the power and authority. You have the ability to hold. You have the ability to remit based on the consequences of the word of God. That's why James tell you, if anyone's sick among you, bring them to the elders, let them pray. And if he have committed any sins, they shall be forgiven unto him. But the elders have the right to speak and to declare the reality of the truth of God. Because we are a body and that is what God is building. And this body is not tiered, it's one. Are you, are you understanding what I'm saying? So your power to bind and loose ain't just no theoretical somewhere. You walk around your house, you're throwing oil there, well, getting your furniture all messed up. It's your power to speak and declare with the authority of God based on the spirit that's in you, what is real and what isn't real based off the reality of God. It's your power to hold and hold up a standard for the church of God and for the people of God based on the authority of God that you can say, uh-uh, that ain't going down up in here. Are you understanding what I'm saying? And we see the reality of it if you track history where the people of God stop being the people of God. 
and they allow foolishness to creep into the church that destroyed the church. Because they allowed the thoughts of evolution to, to, to come up in the church. And the part of that thought was that people with real dark skin, they less than people with real light skin. And some people who claim to be bishops, who claim to be leaders, who claim to be preachers, they believe that junk. And you send a ravishing throughout a whole nation because you have people too punkish to stand up and say, oh, they ain't going down up in here. That a man is a man and you're going to treat him like a man. Are you getting what I'm saying? That over in Germany, when, when Hitler began to rise, one of the first people that he connected to was the bishops and leaders of the churches. And they began to put swastikas up in the churches. And people were too afraid to say, no, nah, that ain't going down up in here. You only had a handful to say, no, nah, this ain't happening. The rest of them were writing just like the rest of them. And we had devastation that's continuing to last now to what is a whole group of people who claim to be children of Abraham, children of the father of God, but don't know God, don't believe in them because of what happened with them church folks way back when. Because they relinquished their authority to a system. Are you understanding what I'm saying? So not a lot of people who say I'm Jewish and they do the rites, they keep the feasts, they keep the festivals, but they don't believe in God because it cannot be a God. Because if it was a God, he wouldn't let y'all church folks treat us so evil. But we have rights, we have power, we have authority. So even now in this day and age, you got rights, you got power, you got authority, but it's as an assembly that we move and that we operate. So we have to be one growing as one and understanding as one and keeping people in check as one. And when foolishness begin to rise, you got to say, no, 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 no. That ain't going to happen in here. You hold, you remit. But we do it based on our authority and our connection with the assembly. Are you with me? So Jesus is doing what? Building a church. How many high people in that church? All of them. How many low people are in that church? All of them. Ain't nobody greater than nobody else. Because we all have access to the same gift and the same grace and the same power for the same mission. And that's the building of everybody to do everything that Jesus wants us to do. Are you understanding what I'm saying? And unless you're doing it, you ain't a part of it. Because that's what Jesus is doing. He's building a church. So if all you're doing is coming and watching and ain't working, you ain't with Jesus because he's building. And if you're waiting on some man to commission you, some man to give you some authority, some man to give you right, you still ain't with Jesus because he gave it to you. He told you to go. Are you with me? I took way too long on that one. 